Uh, well, welcome everybody. I'm excited to be with my friend of very many decades, Tom Harper, who's in Louisville. Uh, we're going to talk about servant leadership in a pandemic storm from the Convene Studios here in California and Tom in Louisville. Welcome to the broadcast. Thanks, Greg. Good to have you with us. Uh, we're going to talk about what does it look like for servant leadership to be a uh, uh, in the forefront concept as we emerge from or remain in, depending on what state you're in, this pandemic COVID disruption and we all continue to live with the tension between profit and people and excellence and faith and try to balance it all on this um, God platform that you've done a lot with. Um, Tom is the CEO of NetWorld Media Group, an industry news and media publisher of industry things like banking, restaurant, retail, tech. And then recently you said, how about publishing some things along biblical lines and you came up with biblicalleadership.com which convene partners on, and there's tips for leaders there. Uh, you've written a few books through colored glasses, leading from the lion's den, but we're going to talk today about your newest book, uh, Servant Leader Strong. I love how you talk about results through servant leadership, and so let's get into it. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Greg. I, I really, you know, we were talking before we started about the results word, and that's that's exactly how I feel about servant leadership these days is that it needs to get results on several levels. And, uh, and so I'm really excited to just dive into that rather than, you know, the typical traditional servant leadership that we've all come to know and love and maybe move on from a little bit. Yeah. I have to tell you, there's this crazy story that happened to me. Um, I was with someone who was uh, Billy Graham's translator in France and we're at his farmhouse in the outskirts of Paris. And he said, uh, come on back to my office. I want to do something for you. And I, you know, thought that was maybe give me a book or pray for me or something. We got back. And, you know, as you go through the airports, uh, the major airports, there's a shoe shine stand, sometimes with a big old chair yeah. uh, raised up. And you, the guy lifts up your pant legs and shines your shoes. Well, he had purchased a shoe shine chair and he wanted to shine my shoes. And this uh, uh, very significant leader shined everybody's shoes in the farmhouse that weekend, which was about 25 people. And uh, he said, this is my 21st century version of washing the disciples' feet. And I thought, Oh my gosh, this is what I want servant leadership to be. So you talk in your book about new servant leadership. It sounds like from the uh, book title or the chapter titles, it's more than leading with humility. Why is it so new? Well, back in 1970, the servant leadership trend really started with Robert Greenleaf. Yeah. He wrote an essay called The Servant as Leader, and one quote that I really like from that or that I've used in my book is that the servant leader is a servant first, then conscious choice brings one to aspire to lead. So it's this juxtaposition of servanthood and leadership. But since then, we've kind of gotten away from that a little bit, or we've, we've, gotten, we've gone more toward the, the softer side, if you will, you know, the washing the, the feet, which is part of servant leadership, but we've really left 
the strong side. And that's the hence the title for the book. And, you know, Jesus is really the model. You know, Lead Like Jesus has been a great um, movement with Ken Blanchard and, and Hodges. And, and, but Jesus gives us this strong model. You know, he didn't just serve people by giving them what they wanted. He didn't flee from conflict. He got into the middle of the hard stuff with his fierce love. You know, he put his, his life in danger for the sake of others. He, he didn't just serve people with a hopeful result that they'd follow him. You know, he was humble and loving, but he wasn't weak. And he led through his servanthood and by his servanthood. And he was gentle as he wielded great power. And the way he served, I, in many ways, is that he led with strength. So he served his followers best by leading with strength in many different ways. Hmm. One example I'll give you is, is the um, confrontation he had with the Jewish leaders you know, he would openly declare his deity with them and defied people that, that wanted to kill him for his alleged blasphemy. And I mean, he rebuked demons. He refused Satan's temptations to the devil's face. He walked on water. He calmed storms. He turned over tables in the temple. He endured a scourging, a public execution. So, you know, let's, let's not just think of foot washing and healing and feeding people. Those are part of this, but let's just not stop there. You know, that's just incomplete, I think, in this notion of servant leadership. So when I say the new servant leadership, I'm just really expanding it into the stronger side that we haven't really delved into much before. Yeah, you could almost, I guess, say this is Jesus, the, the flip side of servant leadership, where uh, he's doing things that are a little, a little more tough. Um, Nancy Orberg said to me uh, that she does a talk sometimes where she encourages people who believe Jesus was just this kind of Casper milk toast mealy mouth guy to take a piece of paper, draw a line down the center of the paper from top to bottom. And on the left side, write all the times Jesus was meek and, and humble and kind. And on the right side, write all the times that he was more confrontational and in your face and mm -hmm. apparently when people do that, the right side of the paper is got way more on it than the left side of the paper. I like that. Yeah, that's, that's right on. That's right on. I mean, if you really study his life and look at what he did, what he said, how he led, how he served, there is a lot more strength and boldness and uh, courage than there is the quiet foot washing. Um, and so that's, that, that was part of the study that I did on Jesus' life and leadership. And as I looked through the whole Bible, I did, a, I did a whole Bible survey on leadership. And I found that throughout the whole Bible with all these other characters, you know, Joshua, Moses, I mean, the, the list goes on, that they had different aspects of strength and servanthood. And if you melded them all together, you really get Jesus in a way, you know, be, yeah. Get, even better than all of them melded together, of course, but you really see a lot of his servant leadership aspects almost split up in, into all these different characters from Old Testament all the way through the New. Hmm. You took three years to work on this, if I understand correctly. Is that right, Tom? Yes, sir. I love, uh, I kind of actually love, uh, here's a little secret about Greg. I love buying books that people did a lot of work that I don't have to do. Yeah. Uh, so thank you for that. And uh, it's certainly worth the price of admission to not spend years and years and years figuring out what you already figured out. And truly, I'm a fan of Ken Blanchard's work. 
but I'm very excited about this notion of new servant leadership as well. So thanks for taking the time. Well, you know, it was it was a a it was a labor of love in that it was it was studying the entire Bible. You know, I, I read it and then just basically every time I got to a verse that had to do with leadership, I wrote it down and came up with a few hundred that I thought had to do specifically and explicitly with leadership and then tweeted those out over about a year's period with, with micro devotions. You know, back when Twitter was just 140 characters, that was a challenge. Yeah. And, and so that took me about a year. Then I collected all those micro devotions and I grouped them into different topic areas and they came up with a larger picture of, of all of those and grouped them even into bigger categories. And that's what turned into the book. You know, I, I wrote longer devotions that were more like a page or a page and a half. And, uh, and, that, and again, that's what became the, the cover to cover study on, on leadership. Great. Well, there's five pillars. Shall we dive in? Let's do it. Uh, the first one, strength under control. Tell us about that. Yeah, Jesus, as we already talked about, had this restrained power during his life on earth, but he didn't start that way. You know, he started as a baby, a weak, helpless human being like all of us. And this example of weakness shows us that even the strongest leaders have humble beginnings. And, and uh, in Matthew, it says, blessed are the meek, merciful, pure in heart and the peacemakers. So this is Jesus' brand of leadership. He begins with meekness and peace. And, and it develops throughout. He never loses it, but he develops that even more. So he began humbly, and then he, he displayed this brilliant style of authoritative leadership that commanded respect. It stirred up thousands of followers willing to die for him by the end of his ministry and beyond, obviously. Uh, and the cool thing is that, that we're promised, if we believe in him, that we're going to do works that he has been doing, and even greater ones, as it says in John 14. And Paul even says, uh, he says, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So Paul revealed the power behind all his great accomplishments. This is, and it's a power that's available to us, the grace of God with me. So servant leadership under this first pillar of strength under control is full of grace and peace and then power and authority under that same pillar. And so it's a dual nature. And it's really, I see it in the name of Prince of Peace that we, that we have for Jesus. You know, it's the Prince of Peace. Hmm. And Prince denotes authority and, and royalty and rule. And Matthew, uh, he says, do, you not, do not think, or do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. So he has that power, but he keeps it under control. So that's, hmm. that's really what I mean by, by strength under control. So can I infer from that that you would say it would be accurate that a leader should do their best to never lose their cool and uh, try to uh, get things done through intimidation or raise their voice or bang the table? It's funny you should bring the, up the bang the table example. Uh, I used to work with a, a, a coworker, an executive many years ago. He used to hit the table all the time. And it just, it got old. It, you know, it's like if you have a document and you bold every word, then nothing is bold. So he was bolding everything he said with emphasis and hitting the table. And over time, as I sort of emerged in, into a, a leadership role and CEO role, 
I learned that if I hit the table about three times a year, it was a lot more effective than doing it three times a week. And, and I'd never did it out of anger at people, but for emphasis. And so, you know, if you have that kind of authority and, and, you, and you exercise it in different ways at different times, I think it can be so much more effective if people know you as a servant. And then they're like wondering, what is this other side of you that I don't want us necessarily see? Um, you know, the anger or, or not the anger for, for a servant leader, but the emphasis and the, the boldness and the passion. And that's what Jesus brought out. He always kept people on, on his toes. I uh, worked for Bill Pollard at Service Master for a while. And sometimes he was in the room when I was in the room. We're talking about results. And he would often say, Greg, if we don't have profit, we don't have a company to honor God. So get on budget. Right on. And, you know, he had a reputation for being very strong. Uh, and um, I introduced him one day and uh, he had a little, little tearing up going on. He thought it was a good introduction. And I said to him, well, you made me cry a few times too, but not for the same reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Pillar number two. I'm kind of excited about pillar number two. Resistance to sin. Six ways to fight sin as a leader. Most leadership books, as you know, Tom, talk about, uh, you know, three ways to achieve success or 14 ways to be better. I don't think I've seen any recent leadership books that talk about how to resist the devil or resist sin, because clearly the temptation to power, the temptation uh, for uh, undue influence, the temptation to do all kinds of things that are anti-biblical is very strong in a leader. You've got, you've got the title, you've got the office, you've got the car, you've got the money, you've got the status, you've got the people who want to be with you, and you can abuse all of that if you're not careful and think that you're somebody when you're actually not. You can abuse all of that before lunch. Yes. On any given day. And, well, I think it helps to name some of the sins that we as leaders deal with. And it's not going to be an exhaustive list, but here are some of the common ones. Bad character, pride, lying, adultery, lust, impatience, bitterness, jealousy. And we, I could go on. And James tells us how, how these sins work. Mm-hmm. Sin itself works in our lives. He says in James 1, but each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. So that is a real microcosm synopsis on how sin works. But if you look at in your own life, how it, it rots away various aspects of, of, of life. You know, it removes God's hand of blessing on our work. And that can be devastating. I, I felt that in, you know, what I thought was his removal of his blessing. And it just, it's, it's a dark down place. Mm -hmm. Sin can create a spirit of discord and pride and negativity that just oozes out of us. It can destroy marriages. And I, I can tell you, if, if I have a you know, a bad night or a bad morning, maybe a conversation with my spouse conversation, and it gets me down. And I think about it all day. 
and and it just affects my mood and my attitude. And so I've I've learned the hard way that when my marriage is healthy, I'm a healthy leader. Mm -hmm. And sin gives the enemy a foothold. It uh, and then the leader's family and and the flock under his care can become vulnerable if if there's sin. I mean, there was this pastor that I had uh, heard about who kept a an adulterous relationship under wraps for years, and and the church just started to collapse and shrink and people were at, a, at each other and they were figuring, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. Then when, when this finally came out, everybody was like, of course, you know, it made sense, but he tried to hide it. Yeah. It's about the, the ways to fight it. I have really brief six ways to, to fight it. So the first, and they're all simple and they're all, I have one verse for each. Okay. So the first is don't look at things you shouldn't. And Psalm 101.3 says, I will set before my eyes no vile thing. And I'm going to leave it to all of you leaders watching. What does that mean for you? Don't look at things you shouldn't. I think you're going to know what that means. I know what it means for my life. Number two, don't let your anger control you. Psalm 4.4 says, in your anger, do not sin. And even if you're a passionate leader, let's say you have a personality and you just can't help but be expressive and passionate, you still can have self-control. And you can stop the passion before it gets to anger sometimes. And that's, that's the critical point. So that's when you don't let your anger get control of you. Do not sin in your anger. Number three, deny yourself physically. And again, this, this one has any number of meanings depending on where you are in your life as a leader, uh, as, a, as a husband, as a father, or just as a man. And the verse I, I'm using for that one referring to is, is Romans 6.12. It says, therefore, don't let sin reign in your body so that you obey its desires. And, and we can fight sin that's trying to reign in our body by denying ourselves physically. That might mean fasting. It might mean um, exercising so that I don't get lazy. It, it might mean various things in my life that relate to my body and physical side of my life that can help me control sin. Number four, don't think about how to satisfy sinful desires. Romans 13, 14 says, do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. You know, leadership power that you mentioned just a minute ago, Greg, can feed these desires. You know, if I feel like I have this authority over people and, and I, I can abuse that and suddenly I can find that I'm feeding my desires to express my power or or fulfill my jealousy, or, or even worse. Five, don't think you're exempt because you're a leader. Don't think you're exempt from sin. And 1 Timothy 1.15 says, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, Paul says. So even Paul, our super apostle brother and, and leader in the church, re recognized that he was one of the worst sinners ever. And if we can adopt a bit of that attitude, it will be very healthy for us. And at least to realize we're not exempt from sin just because we're in authority. And then six, and finally, we should not sin just because others do. Third John 11 says, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. And culture can entice us to do things that we wouldn't normally do. Leadership is vulnerable to culture, and we got to resist the, the allure of culture and all the things it offers from the, to the leader from a power perspective. 
uh, from a, um, you know, I deserve this or, or I need more attitude. You know, those, those can all be destructive and, and, and we, may we may adopt those because we see other leaders in the media, especially high powered CEOs at public companies or, you know, or large organizations that, that are sinning and they look like they're getting away with it. Mm -hmm. and, but we don't know what it's doing to them inside. So those are, those are the six ways that I came up with from reading scripture on how to fight the sin that besets us as leaders. Those are so fascinating. And I, I think not talked about, uh, as I said, because most people that are talking about how to be a great leader are talking about how to refine your greatness, how to refine your goodness, how to refine your, the average parts of you and make them great, i.e. book, good to great, uh, yeah. or uh, whatever the title you want to come up with. But they're all taking good and making it better, not wherever you are on the leadership continuum. What about making sure you don't think you're that hot, et cetera, et cetera. So gosh, thanks for that. Okay, number three, pillar number three, appliable planning, which is an oxymoron in and of itself. Talk about that. We've all heard the verse that talks about counting the cost before we build a tower, you know, and, and so that's, we can take that very literally to just, okay, let's figure out what the cost is before we do something. And that's kind of an obvious one-on-one -on -one level management issue in leadership and, and in business and in ministry. Uh, but as I studied more about a, what planning means as it relates to God's omniscient view of the future, and yet his, his, desire for us to plan, it was confusing at first until I started to put some pieces together. So I'm going to try to put a few of those pieces together really quickly. And so to start with Proverbs 1920s is a bit of a summary verse. It says, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. So that sets our thinking right. Planning is good, but we need to remember whose plan we're actually going to follow. So, so far he hasn't said, don't plan. Don't come up with a business plan. Don't create a budget. So we're safe so far. If, if you're a budget or you're a planner, you're, you're good. Uh, but sometimes I wonder, you know, am I doing enough to grow the company? Am I wasting time on this project or that? And I feel like, you know, I need to be bolder. I need to work harder. I need to risk more. And, and, and all, all, all those questions, as I put those next to my planning desire, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. And so I need to put my, my security into a plan. And that's when I start to get into trouble. But most leaders deal with these self-critical questions, and we, we try to cure those questions and answer those questions with a plan. But God wants us to trust him and not a plan. So being flexible means that we just don't get bent out of shape when things change. Uh, because as, as James says, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow in James 4, 14. So we have to have a loose grip on our strategic planning. And we have to plan with an open hand. So what I mean by that is we plan still hoping and praying to receive from the Lord wisdom and insight. Proverbs 21.30 says, there is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. So again, it doesn't say don't plan. It just says our plan, no matter how good or comprehensive or long-term or how brilliant it is, it won't succeed against the Lord's will if his will is different. He will use our plan and work it into his will. And he will work in us by sometimes interrupting our plan or changing it. Hmm. So if we're aware that he's going to change our plans, and yet we still plan, 
we are in a healthy, in a healthy spot. In Proverbs 20, 24, it says, a man's steps are directed by the Lord. How then can anyone understand his own way? And, and so, you know, you get to the end of all these verses, if you, you know, you could read more on planning in the Bible and, and you ask yourself, okay, well, then what am I supposed to do? If, if, if God is in control, it's his, it's his prerogative, what he wants to do with my business, with my life, with my vision, with my strategies, you know, what am I supposed to do? Because I'm maybe a visionary leader, you know, or I'm maybe a planner or I'm used to budgeting. I've done this for decades, let's say, if, I'm, if I've been in business a long time. Very simple. My, my conclusion I drew from all this is we pray for his will to be revealed. We pray for him to conform us to his will. We ask him to inspire our thinking and to direct our steps. And then we get to planning. Hmm. The more I listen to you, the more practical this uh, book is sounding, my friend. It's uh, not a lot of platitudes and a lot of powerful principles. That's how I have to lead. And that's how I have to study the Bible because I'm always like, okay, that's a great philosophy or doctrine or, you know, big thought, but what do I do with it? And so as I read through the whole Bible, that's the attitude I had is, well, what do I do? You know, how, how did Jesus do it? How did Joshua do this? How did Paul do this? And, and how am I supposed to think every day? And, you know, I've read so many leadership books over the years. I mean, and I finish a book and I'm like, well, what do I do with all that? You know, and sometimes I go back to it and I'll have to look at my highlights and I'm like, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do. So I wanted to write a book that's more of a tool that was really like nothing but highlighted verses with, with thoughts for each one. And it's so funny when I prepared for our talk today, I went back through my book and, and, and I'm like, boy, I'm glad I prepared because I need to be reminded of that verse right there in that chapter. And, you know, even someone that's written something like that has to go back and reread. It's like a journal, you know, a year ago, I'm going to reread something I wrote down that was big in my life and it's going to hit me in a different way now. And be like, I'm so glad I reread that because I needed that piece of it for right now, especially in this pandemic that we're still facing. Yeah. You remember you and I knew each other when I was doing some things with Leighton Ford and Arrow Leadership and uh, Arrow Leadership likes to talk about polishing arrows and mm -hmm. the arrow is the leader. And we want the feathers to be just right so the arrow flies straight. We want the tip to be sharp so it does its work when it gets to the target. We want the wood to be straight, not curved, so it flies straight. And polishing arrows is something you have to keep doing. Uh, you can't just say, let me pull this arrow that's been in the basement for 10 years and then shoot it at the target and hope you hit it because you probably right. so. Hats off to you, uh, but there's more. Uh, strength under control, resistance to sin, pliable planning, and now powerful peace. I, I'm looking forward to hearing about powerful peace. This one, I think, can really be applied to what we're, we're all going through and have been going through for the last three or four months. And it's, it's like I, I used to have a nightmare where I would wake up with a sudden realization that my company could fall apart at any moment. And I, I and many of you did that just a few months ago. You know, my business, I suddenly had 20 some odd years 
of work start to crumble in my mind. And I'm like, Lord, what is going on here? What do I do? And, and I just, I got sucked down into this vortex and spun down almost like a drain and, 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 and just got down about it. And, and I had to fight out of that, you know, and call on the Lord to, to bring myself out of that. And so as I, as I went through that, I, I kept a couple of verses in front of me. They're very similar. One is Psalm 55, 22. It says, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. And the other verse in the New Testament is 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Uh, so these are powerful verses that are easy to remember. You know, cast your cares upon the Lord. Cast your anxiety on him. If you just think of this casting, you know, you're, you're just throwing it upon him. He's going to take it. And in the Old, the Old Testament, uh, this army of Israelites, they, they feared imminent defeat in 1 Chronicles 5. They cried out to God. And the text says, he answered their prayers because they trusted in him. And they had victory because they trusted in him. You know, you think about what we've gone through and what we're still in and coming out of, hopefully. You know, it's not as bad as being in a war where our, our, our whole, you know, lives of the entire people are, are at stake. If, you know, we're not being invaded. You might think we are from this virus, the whole world is. But this, uh, this verse in Philippians 4, 6, I think brings it to a point. You talk about the arrow point. It says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need. Philippians 4, 6. And it says, then it says, then you will experience God's peace. So there's your practical verse. Mm -hmm. Pray about anything. Instead, pray about everything. And as you pray, tell God what you need. Then you will experience God's peace. So there's the how to get God's peace. Yeah. And the message adds even a new bit of color. It says, before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good will come and settle you down. Mm. I like that, that paraphrase. God's peace is powerful. It can settle down even this, this swirl that, that we're feeling. That's so good. My uh, Greek scholar friends, of which I am not, I can only remember what they say, tell me that that verse, if translated uh, completely uh, accurately from the Aramaic or the Greek, would say, and the God of peace will march century duty around your mind. And the March century duty is this notion of the Roman guards. And when the Roman guards were given a job to guard something, the penalty for failure was death. And so the God of peace will march century duty around your mind. I love that picture. And that's God is marching century duty around your mind. Nobody is getting in. That's so, so exciting. So powerful. Yep, I love that. Uh, okay, hard truth. This is the, the fifth of the five. And, you know, we've all had to face some hard truths during this, this pandemic. And even if we had, you know, challenges before then, just, um, but there's all kinds of new challenges that were suddenly heaped upon us. You know, we have obviously the loss of life, the widespread sickness, people losing jobs, people losing companies, people having to lay, lay people off, you know, from, from the owners and, and, and CEOs perspective, very difficult to lead during this time. But as we move into the aftermath market, you know, the, the, the post pandemic world, 
You may find in, in leaders that you need to make some changes that are hard. And, but if you're like me, you hate to cause pain. And, and sometimes it's going to require that uh, to cause pain uh, with, with people. And, but, but Luke 12, 51 reminds us that Jesus himself accepted that painful issues were part of leadership. He said, do you think I came to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but division. So he was all about the truth may cause division, but the truth is the truth, and therefore the truth reigns. He, he was invited to a dinner at a Pharisee's house, as we read in Luke 6. But instead of just having this pleasant evening with his host, he insulted the man. Yeah, not a great dinner guest. Yeah, he, an expert in the law, reclined with, with him at the table and says, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also, meaning all these other, these other teachers. But rather than smooth things over, Jesus says, and you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. And when Jesus was done with these guys, he had made mortal enemies, I mean, in a literal sense. And now you probably think, well, the dinner host and the guests went to bed insulted, but perhaps later on they meditated on Christ's words, and maybe some of them reconciled with God because they heard those, those harsh words. So the, the lesson he gave us as, in this model in leadership is that we must deal in truth. When that truth hurts someone, we can't shrink back if we believe God's greater good is at stake. Uh, and that's hard sometimes, but it's necessary for the health of the organization. And, and we can deliver that truth sometimes in a kind, generous, gentle way, but we still deliver the truth. Sometimes it, it, it calls for a stronger delivery of the truth, and we may have to cause division. But we just should not shrink back from truth because you can't escape it. I was talking to Pat Gelsinger one day uh, up in Silicon Valley, and he got very upset at this principle that you're talking about in, in an agreement with you. Uh, I asked him about somebody who had a non-performing employee team member, and they thought, well, I like this person so much, I don't want to bring it up. I might hurt their feelings. I said, Pat, talk to that. And he just got angry, basically, uh, not out of control, but he was pretty ticked off and was like, do your job as a leader. The enterprise needs to be directed. It's not just about people. It, it means you're supposed to love people. Yes. It means you're supposed to care for people. Yes. Yeah. Well, as Bob Beal uh, likes to say, um, I love you too much to allow you to continue to fail. So in order to be fair to you and fair to the organization, we're going to have to make a change. Yeah, here. I'm going to love you right out of the organization. Yeah, release you to industry. <laughs> yeah, I, I've failed a couple times in recent history in that area. And, you know, I, I kept holding out hope that this guy who was a believer that worked for me was going to change. And yet I, I kept being surprised by his self-centered attitude that his job was for him that he was supposed to be happy that i had changed something and and he was all up in arms and i'm like dude business changes the market changes yeah. these facts you talk about truth you know it's like we have now this to deal with so can you help over here and he just was got bent out of shape because his job description slightly changed and and I can understand someone being upset about that, you know, uh, but, but I kowtowed to that, you know? Yeah. 
I catered to that way too much and I went, it went on way too long and it was not good for either of us for that to continue to go on. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I love what you just said. It's just, you know, helping someone realize that it's better for them if, if they're not in the organization, just as good as it is for the organization itself. So some strange thoughts that maybe aren't said often, Jesus uh, didn't just love people. He cared about, about his mission. He sometimes offended people to get the point across. He was, uh, because he was fully God as well as fully man, he knew the state of somebody's life, i.e. woman at the well. Uh, but mm -hmm. isn't it interesting, I think sometimes, he could have known the woman at the well's state of many husbands and not said anything, but he actually revealed the truth that only he could know as God uh, to her. He could have been more sort of docile, but he, but he wasn't. He turned around to two of his disciples one time and said, hey, stop it. Stop arguing about who's going to be first in the kingdom. He could have let that go. He could have just said, uh, you know, two guys are just arguing. They're just boys. Let, yeah, let yeah. them just uh, keep offending me and offending the principles that I've been teaching them for three years here. And now they're arguing about who's going to be first in the kingdom. And he turns around, hey, stop it. So that's the Jesus you're talking about as servant leader strong. It is. He addresses things. And what a great model for us, especially if, if you're a younger leader and as a believer, you're trying to figure out what servant leadership looks like in your career. Jesus gives us just an incredible model of addressing issues head on with the truth, with fortitude, with strength, with, with powerful peace, you know, with flexibility with resistance to sin and with strength under control, but still with that strength. Mm, yeah, great. Any final thoughts about the book or about these concepts? Just one. There's a, uh, there's a picture that, that I got from, from some verses in the Bible of, of a gentle warrior. Huh. And it's just a, another good um, visual that I think we can aspire to as biblical servant leaders. And it's encapsulated in a verse in Proverbs. And I want to give you the message paraphrase of it. it's Proverbs 25, 15. It says, patient persistence pierces through indifference. Gentle speech breaks down rigid defenses. So if you have patient persistence, there's that coupling of gentleness and strength, okay? Patience and persistence. That coupling, which becomes a single entity, pierces through indifference or, or you know, lack of clarity or, um, you know, not knowing what the future holds, like with fear and so forth, you know, just being unsure. So patient persistence. And the second half of that verse talks about how to break down rigid defenses. And a lot of times rigid defenses are within our own employees. They, they're of course within us as well, but as we lead, sometimes we can sense there's this like wall and we're just not able to get through it. How do we get through it? Do we keep pushing? Well, if we take patient persistence, it can, it can pierce it and then gentle speech can break down that rigid defense. And so here we have this really three-way view of servant leadership, patience, persistence, 
and gentle speech. And both, all, all three of those things can pierce through indifference with strength, with power, or can break down rigid defenses. And so if you do these things, if you have gentle, gentle speech with a feeling of your authority as the leader, and you say certain words that might say, you might say something like, I need you to get this done. You agree with me, don't you, that this is the right thing to do. That's gentle speech. I'm not talking about, well, if you want to, maybe sometime next week, if you're not busy, can you get that done maybe? Some people might think that's the gentle speech I'm talking about. No, gentle speech is speaking as against rigid defenses sometimes with words that can break a bone, that can break through these rigid defenses. And uh, so Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 9.17, last verse for you. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Wow, I love that. So Tom, if a leader might be pounding the table too much and they'd rather be pleasantly persistent as you just referred to some great Bible verses, where would someone go to grab a copy of Servant Leader Strong? Just on Amazon, just type in Servant Leader Strong in the search field and you'll, you'll get to it. Uh, my last name is Harper if you need to type that in as well, uh, but it's just right on Amazon. Great, thanks. And we're very excited and very honored that you uh, and I have a partnership with Convene and BiblicalLeadership.com. BiblicalLeadership.com is uh, those exact words. You can go find it on the web. And there are, I think now fair to say, hundreds and hundreds of articles, some of which are written by folks at Convene. We're very honored to yep. be uh, uh, with you guys on that, uh, on that initiative. And we'd love to do more. And uh, we look forward to that, Tom. Thanks for taking time today. Yep, same here. Well, thanks for having me, Greg. Enjoyed it.